I want you to take your Bible. Uh, first of all, if you would, grab a hymn book and raise it up. Would you please grab a hymn book and raise it up? Uh, one or two got it right. No, that's a song book. This is the hymn book. It's all about Jesus. So take your hymn book and raise it high. Uh, collegiates, I want to tell you, and I'll probably say a little more about this in the course of my message, but uh, I got right with God between my freshman and sophomore football seasons. I played football at SFA before you were born. I was an offensive center. My wife tells me I'm still a pretty offensive center at times. But um, between my freshman and sophomore season is when God revolutionized my life. And I came back uh, my sophomore season to play football for Jesus. But I fell in love with Jesus completely, head over heels. I've not gotten over it to this day. But this church became central to my spiritual growth. Now, I was active in Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I was active in the BSU. I was active in Campus Crusade for Christ. I snuggled the president of InterVarsity Fellowship into our dorm because that was in the days when uh, normal people wore short hair and all the hippies wore long hair. The president of InterVarsity Fellowship had hair that literally hung down uh, almost... Uh, well, I should do his waistline. That's a good, word, a good place to place it. And so he would put in a baseball cap and I would smuggle him into the athletic dorm where they would have killed him had they known he was in there just so he could teach me the Bible. And uh, that's, uh, that's a true story. He became a very dear personal friend. But this church is where God really did a work in my life. There are numbers of adults and a couple that I cited this morning in the early worship who had profound influence on me, not by what they said, but the way they steadily lived their life. So I want to encourage you in the first place that you do attend church regularly. Uh, these front pews have the softest, firmest cushions in the entire place because they're never used. Pastor, I always sat right there on the very front pew because I was afraid that uh, if, it got, if it went by the first pew, I'd miss the best part. I also sat up toward the front, at the front, because I, I am a... Boy, I am ADD to the extreme. I have to, I have to make myself focus. Uh, if I had come up in today's world, I'd have been a drug addict, uh, medicated because I, I never sat still. I decided early on, if I was gonna go to church as much as I wanted to go to church, I'd better preach because otherwise I'd be bored. So I started preaching uh, while I was in this church. Stand in honor of God's word. We're gonna look at Ephesians chapter five, verse 18. If you'll turn to that or if you'll uh, pay attention to the overhead, I'm going to run the verses there. Let's stand, please, in honor of God's word. I also do that because it gets some blood circulating. And we're going to be here at about six o'clock, so I need to keep you fresh. Uh, the scripture says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. Speaking to, your, to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the God, the father in everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on and says, submit one to another out of the reverence for Christ. You know, I memorized this passage in King James. I keep wanting to revert back to it. I have to make myself follow the text. Why submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. That's my favorite verse in the Bible. Uh, but you understand it's preceded by saying, submit yourselves one to another. This is not a hammer for, for men to use on their wives. It's a, mutual, it's a mutual submission. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
But here's how and why they will do that. Husbands, love your wives. And how should we love our wives? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then finally, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their, wife, their own body, but they feel, feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Now, I want you to read the highlighted part aloud with me. Mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Isn't that fascinating and interesting? In this lengthy passage on husband-wife relationships, he says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the joy of reading your word. We know your word is truth. We know that if we read and, and receive truth, it will have a revolutionary impact on our lives. We ask you to help us do that in the mighty name of Jesus. While you're standing, I want to ask you to repeat this prayer after me. But after you hear it, make it your prayer. Lord Jesus, speak to my heart this morning. Let's all pray aloud. Lord Jesus, speak to my heart this morning. Now, Lord, we know if you do that, then everyone in this room will be enriched. So we ask it in Jesus' name and all the people said, amen. You know, you may be seated. Isn't it interesting? This passage talks about being filled with the Spirit and then launches into this, the, the most lengthy passage Paul writes regarding husband-wife relationships. When I was your age, there was a movement called the Charismatic Movement sweeping across America. And it really began causing a lot of division. In fact, people were going to churches that were not normally uh, charismatic in nature and trying to teach people how to, quote, speak in tongues. It had a lot of devastating consequences on a lot of people. And they were taking the verse, you know, about being filled with the Spirit and just hammering people with it to get some type of an ecstatic experience. Now, this sermon's not about ecstatic experiences, but it is to emphasize that when Paul said, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, he immediately turns to the family and to husband-wife relationships. Why is that? The fullness of the Spirit of God is not so we can exalt ourselves, but so we can be great husbands and fathers. And then right into chapter six, where it teaches that we are to be godly parents and to train children in the way they should go. There's no place where the filling of the Holy Spirit should be more impactful and certainly not more needful than in just being in a family. You know, we live in an age of great uncertainty. We live in an age where everything is, is, is being challenged and where life, in fact, society is coming unhinged. People go to a concert and hundreds of people are mowed down uh, by a madman uh, in a window overlooking, fully armed with all manner of, of, of ability to just mow people down with machine guns. 
Uh, we go to church and a gunman comes in and fires away. You know, the first church shooting in my lifetime happened at First Baptist Church Dangerfield. I was a young evangelist at the time and I conducted a revival there just weeks after the shooting in which 12 people were, were, were killed. Bullet holes all over the church. I, I, I met the people that survived that exchange. But you know, that's commonplace now. Uh, there's nowhere we go that we're safe uh, from these kinds of things. And it's, it, it has its roots in, in a complete divorcement of our culture from biblical sanity. Uh, today, uh, in our culture, God's laws are, are ignored. They're just uh, as if they didn't exist. And people are often viewed as a means to an end, both by politicians and corporate America. You collegiates are going to graduate and look for a job. Some of you may already be employed uh, in your career uh, choice. But there are collegiates here that are preparing for a future life, hopefully uh, making enough money not only to live, but to prosper. But you're going into a world totally different than the one I went into. My grandfather in the 1950s moved from Ashland, Kentucky, all the way down to, to Houston, Texas, to open what then was known as Sheffield Steelworks. At its height, it employed 17,000 people. We lived in the shadow of the plant. My father walked to the plant every day where he took a job at age 16. And then when family came along, we moved right there in the shadow of the mill because we could only afford one car and he could walk to work. I remember hearing the, 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 the clanging of the blast furnace and, and the making of that molten lava and seeing a sky lit up from, from the effects of, of taking molten metal and making what we enjoy in terms of steel works. My father, my grandfather worked there until he died of lung cancer at age 54. My father worked there for 37 years until they closed down the plant because it could no longer compete with foreign steel. 37 years. My dad to this day at age 90 is still loyal to Sheffield Steelworks, later known as Armco Steel, because they treated him as a human being with a good pay and good benefits, 90 years old and still drawing a pension. And when he dies, my mother will receive that pension until she dies. Corporate America treated people like human beings in those days. I often deal with men now who devote their 20 years, the best part of their life to some business or to some employer only to one day walk in and be informed that they can be replaced by a younger man or a machine for half the cost. And they're given their walking papers and at a stage in life when they were really feeling comfortable, suddenly they're without a job. There is no loyalty in corporate America. And look at our politicians. Just in the last 10 days, we discovered that one of the most conservative members of Congress, pro-life, pro-family, Joe Barton, a man I know personally, and he's got a secret life. And I'm telling you, he's not even speaking to the press right now. Well, he shouldn't, but he had a secret life and literally uh, sent a picture of himself nude to his lover. His excuse initially was, well, I was between wives and uh, it, was a, it was a consensual relationship. Oh, really? So you're our pro-life, pro-family legislator and you're fornicating? But that's the world we live in. We find out that there's a slush fund. Politicians using taxpayer dollars to pay off the victims of their harassment. Uh, I apologize, you college kids. I'm telling you, my generation has made a mess of it. Pastor, we hadn't done so well. 
The only hope for America is a redeemed church full of Jesus, people who comprise that church, taking the same commitment to Christ that men like... Well, a good example is Finney. He was a practicing attorney. He fell in love with Jesus in the 40s, the 1840s, began traveling across America, preaching Christ and ushering a second great awakening that redeemed this country from ultimately slavery. In fact, it impacted the North and the South. The soldiers paid to the same God while they killed each other. But out of it, through the bloodbath of 600,000 human beings, came a nation that finally expunged slavery. America was born in the first great awakening. When men like George Whitfield and a host of other lesser known preachers crisscrossed the Americas and across uh, the Atlantic and saw an awakening come that gave the courage to our founders to fight for independence, we've got to have the same kind of move of God if America is going to be changed. And collegiates, if your vision for America is anything less than seeing her return to her moral foundations, then for God forgive you. We've got to have another generation with that kind of vision. Do you embrace that? Do you believe God can do it? You know what I'm finding out? We now live in a generation of people who don't believe even God can save America. Isn't that tragic? Boy, I'm off my sermon notes. Let's follow real quick. Just write these down. The courts occasionally choose to write law rather than interpret law. Now there's a reason for the, for the, the, the outline we're following. And I simply want to make a point for you to see. The Supreme Court of the United States removed Bible reading and prayer from public schools in 62 and 63. No debate, no vote. It wasn't long until empowered, they removed all protection from unborn life, 1973. Next came the 10 commandment removal from all the public places. And then they turned their sights on nothing less than marriage itself in 2015, when the Supreme Court of the United States found a right for, for homosexual same-sex unions to be declared uh, married, countering natural law, countering uh, centuries, centuries, literally thousands of years of human history. And suddenly they found a right in the constitution no one had ever seen before. In fact, the chief justice of the Supreme Court writing for the minority, he, he called it a political maneuver when he called them unelected judges writing law rather than interpreting law. But there was a method to their madness. I mean, now we've got judges trying to redefine gender. We have come a long way in a short period of time, but you need to understand something. When they went after prayer and Bible study, they removed uh, the anchor of the Word of God from public life. When they went after the Ten Commandments, they removed the moral foundation for all of our laws. When they went after uh, the unborn child, they attacked the very image of God. The most innocent of, of human beings, or the most innocent among us, were suddenly vulnerable to be slaughtered in their mother's womb. And when they went after marriage, they denied natural law. There's only been a few times in history when our courts have done such. One of the times was when they decided before the Supreme Court that a human being, a black human being, was only three-fifths human, denying natural law. And it resulted in a bloodbath. Guys and ladies and gentlemen and collegiates, there's got to be an understanding that we're at war for the soul of America. Now, that's all the bad news. God's laws are ignored by Christians at their peril. Now, Culture does it all the time. Courts have done it. But you and I can't. We are bound by God's law. I read the Ten Commandments recently, and guess what I discovered? They're still intact. 
They're not broken. You cannot break God's 10 commandments. They'll break you if you try to ignore them or abandon them, but you can't break God's 10 commandments. Uh, if we ignore God's law, it will be to our detriment. Um, the church will determine America's destiny. Now, I want you to focus on that. Uh, we hear about shootings. We see all the ill in our society. But in this room, there is a nucleus of people who will determine how America turns out. Uh, I told you my generation hadn't done a very good job. I pray your generation catches a vision and makes the difference. God ordained three institutions on the earth. This is simply a little history lesson. In the first place, he instituted the family to perpetuate humankind. Uh, in the second place, he, he instituted government to mitigate humankind's uh, interactions and their disputes. Because of the sin nature of man, it is natural that disputes will come. P politics is the addressing of issues and problems short of bullets. Governments were instituted uh, to restrain evil and to reward that which is good. They don't always do that, but that's the reason God instituted them. And then finally, God instituted the church to propagate the gospel to the ends of the earth and to civilize this nation. When the, when the family is perverted, when the governments are perverted, and when the church loses her passion and, and vision of mission, it all begins to come unwound. And that's exactly where we are today. But understand something. God's not through with the country. His gift to the world was marriage. And I'm going to show you that in just a few moments. You're going to have to listen real quick because I've been told there's a trap door that opens up right at 12 o'clock. God perceived a problem. Man was alone. Now that's interesting. I just got back from a, a, a safari and a hunt in South Africa and I saw animals that I never dreamed in my lifetime I'd have a chance to see. You guys show up tonight at five o'clock, we'll feed you pizza and I'm gonna show a slide presentation to the men of that hunting trip. Uh, it'll fascinate you. There's gonna be a few of a trip I took to Canada as well and went caribou hunting and you'll see some interesting pictures if you come and we'll set the table then for this conference we're gonna be having this week. God perceived a problem, man was alone. He marched every single animal in front of, of Adam. Adam named them all. And then the Bible says, God looked down and he said he was sitting there all by himself alone. He had a problem, but God also provided a solution. And here it is. He gave man a woman. He took a rib out of man's side. He performed the first surgical procedure. He presented this female in front of Adam and if you read the, the Hebrew language in that passage, he basically looked at that woman and for all the other animals and he said, wow, this is great. I have to agree. You know, if, if, if man had been in charge of choosing a mate, he probably would have picked a good hunting dog or some other crazy thing. But God saw man was alone and gave him a woman. Now we are so confused in our society today that we're not quite sure woman's good enough, so we, we're looking for other alternatives. But God designed woman to walk alongside of man and to complete man. My wife completes me. We've been married now, going on 47 years in just a few more days. In light of that, God instructed man to leave his parents. Now why does he say wives leave your parents? Because in a standard relationship of marriage, a woman takes on her, hus her husband's name typically 
and she enters into his family and becomes a part of his life, it is natural. A woman naturally can do that. You know, the hardest part is to break men off from their families and especially their mothers. We just went through Thanksgiving. If you said one word as a married man about how good your mother's pie was and, and implying your wife's wasn't all that good, shame on you. What kills marriages is when men don't understand the importance of leaving and cleaving. But that's the instruction that the word of God gives us and repeats it both in the Old and New Testament. He is to cleave to his wife and finally they are to weave a family. In fact, there's an important passage of scripture that tells us that. In the Old Testament, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. I agree with that because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who has, falls and has no one to help them. It goes on to say this, and also if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then it says this, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, this passage could imply or could apply to a lot of relationships but I like to apply it to marriage. And here's the reason why. Because the two intertwine their lives together. It's talking about two, 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 and then all of a sudden it says three. I happen to personally believe that what it's telling us is that the natural relationship of a man and woman will produce a third member of the family, a child. There are others that interpret this passage to mean that God and two make an unbreakable, uh, an unbreakable uh, rope or strand. And certainly that applies. And there's no argument between the two. I can't prove one point or the other. I, I like to understand it in light of other passages that what you're doing is you're weaving a family and three strands makes it virtually unbreakable. Whether you embrace that or not. Uh, that's my secretary and she's here all weekend to help me uh, with, with this conference. And if she's leaving, there's a good reason for it. Uh, but if you can stick around, I'm going to buy you lunch. <laughs> uh, I, want, I meant to introduce her earlier. She's been uh, my right arm uh, for the last 15 years here in East Texas. A stand of three, a, a rope of three strands cannot easily be broken. Listen carefully. The Bible says, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything you shall ask, it'll be done of our Father who is in heaven. Now think about that. If two of you agree, now that's not a formula to get you a brand new sports car. You can't say, well, I agree with my wife. I want the finest car ever produced. I, you can't, it's not, a, it's not a magic wand that you can get whatever you want. But the word agreement means that if you can agree with the purposes of God, and you and another person come to one in that understanding of what God's purpose is, you can ask him for it and it will be done. It also says, if two or three gather together in my name, there will I be in what? The midst of them. So think about the genius of the scripture. God talks about two uniting in marriage, a man leaving his family and weaving his life with that woman. And then out of that relationship comes the third member, the child. You now have a practicing small church. You literally have a place where God dwells without ever going to a building like this. You know what makes a great church? When families who are walking with God come together for corporate worship and based on the strength of the family, the church becomes a 
community of families and then begins to reflect Jesus to a community. We learned early on, a little background, when I was uh, 24 years of age, I left a seminary pastorate and went into full-time evangelism. Uh, I had enough good friends to book about four meetings and that took us up to Christmas. On Christmas Day, I didn't have another meeting in the world and didn't know how we were going to get through Christmas because we were living by faith. We began praying and we began seeing God stack miracle on top of miracle on top of miracle on top of miracle. We had one child that had been born in the August preceding that and we began praying every, for everything we had to have just to survive. We weren't praying for fancy cars. We were praying for food. And I don't have time in this message to delineate all that God did. But you know what I found out when we were uh, putting up Christmas lights over the, the, this past weekend? I found a box in the attic that I assumed was Christmas lights. I opened it up. It's a, a box about the size of this uh, top, uh, about equal height. And it was full of journals, handwritten journals. When we complete one, we just kind of stick it away. My wife's journals, my journals, it would make a stack at least this high, thousands of handwritten pages over a 47 year marriage. And we have learned that God answers prayer and we have a record of it. If you're not journaling collegiate, I couldn't give you better advice today than to start right now. If you can't do it every day, do it every week, but make a record of your life. Look at what you're, you're asking God for. Write it down. It will build your faith and it'll be a legacy to your children someday. But we began praying. As the kids got older, we found that in their simplistic understanding of God, that we couldn't find a more powerful prayer ally than those children. We raised them to believe the Bible was real. Uh, we raised them to believe that God answers prayer. And so when we had some hard issue, some major need, we never burdened them with our needs, but we would pray in their presence and they would agree with us. And you know what? When our adult doubts would creep in, that childlike faith would seize the moment. And did we ever see God work miracles? You can't, you can't believe how God has ordained and, and built a life for you where you weave your life together with your spouse and out of that godly relationship produce offspring who love Jesus just like you do and how God can use a child to save the day because their simplistic approach to God. We have to get old and sophisticated to begin doubting God, don't we? Let's move on. Uh, marriage is a revelation of Christ to the world. Now that's back to the other point. All that passage about husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church, wives submit yourselves to your husband, and then he interjects this word, but I'm really talking about Christ and the church. The marriage is a picture, or I should say, the union of marriage is a picture of Christ to the world. Um, are you aware that God has at least a threefold purpose in marriage? Now, everything I've said has been a buildup for the next three points, and we're going to be out here shortly. The initial purpose of getting married in the future for many of you, some of you can relate already, the initial purpose of marriage is so that you can begin to learn to love someone of the opposite sex. Now in marriage counseling, I've had more than one couple look at me in absolute consternation and say, well, we already love each other. 
And I, I, I say to them as discreetly as I can, write that down and then call me three months after you're married. Because you know what you'll find out on day one of marriage? You really don't know much about the other person. If you wait until your wedding day to live with your spouse, and if you don't, God help you. The reason there are fewer divorces now than there were 10 years ago is because nobody gets married. For the first time last year, according to statistics, for the first time, more people were living together out of wedlock than in wedlock. That still doesn't give you a justification for doing it. And it's still a violation of God's norm and you will be accountable if you choose to live with someone before you're married. There's no, there's no justification for sex outside of marriage. But just to say that to make sure we, we understand that, understand this. You think you love someone and that's why you get married. But you know what I discovered? I discovered when I got married to Tommy, she was different from me. Isn't that a brilliant revelation? Do you know that God made male and God made female and they're not the same? I'll tell you, the biggest mistake I made in my marriage early on was I tried to make Tommy just like me. We became one flesh. The problem was we didn't know which flesh. I'm the stronger of the two personalities. So I began dominating our marriage. Now I can say this, she's sitting right here. I've repented of this and she'll tell you that I have but I dominated everything, every decision. And when my wife did something I didn't think was exactly perfect, I, I developed a habit, God forgive me, I, I regret even having to share this, but I started humming the Laurel and Hardy uh, theme song. If she overcooked the eggs, I would, I would make my feelings known by humming that little theme song. If she, if she did anything I didn't like, I would, and you know what? I began to lock her up in a prison of failure. A man of God who greatly impacted my life named Jack Taylor, who wrote a series of books on the spirit-filled life and other things. Very widely acknowledged evangelist, still alive, but he's 80 some odd years old now. But I began to, to seek him out and seek his counsel. He and a couple of other older preachers began to get a hold of my heart and began to share with me that I was receive my wife as she is, that she was God's gift. If I turned her loose, our marriage would blossom. But if I kept putting her in bondage, I would destroy our life. And so I repented and I set her free. And the woman that I criticized early in our marriage for not being all that, quote, capable, raised three children while I traveled the world. She's responsible for the godly children that came out of our life because she's a strong, gifted woman in areas where I am not. One of the reasons I successfully pastored and people accepted me is they loved her so much they could overlook my faults. Let me tell you something, guys. You're not gonna find a perfect woman. Let me say something, girls. You're not gonna find a perfect man. But when you find the man or woman God has for you, if you love them for who they are and release them, God will build a strong and healthy marriage. Marriage is a revelation of Christ to the world. The initial purpose of marriage is to love someone of an opposite sex. Here's the intermediate purpose of marriage. If you love someone and you have relations, you're gonna naturally have children. Let me say this, the sexual relationship is designed to be experienced by two people who've made a covenant with God for life. It's 
Purpose is procreation, not recreation. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy that relationship. Man, I have and I do with one person, the wife of my youth. But the intermediate purpose of marriage is to bear children. And you bear children as you learn to live the crucified life. Listen carefully. Jesus said, if any man will follow me, let him take up his cross, deny self, and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. It's not simply an instru- uh, uh, something you wear around your neck. It's an instrument of death. Paul said that you needed to learn to die every day for a marriage to flourish, for a relationship of marriage to be blessed. The couple has to come to the place where they understand what it means to reckon themselves dead and alive unto God. I am crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you understand that the crucified life is essential to a marriage? It's essential to living. A baby comes, and if you haven't died to yourself, you'll destroy that baby. You young uh, parents-to-be especially, you need to take this and write it in the margin of your Bible. Babies don't have accidents. I know we say that. Oops, he had an accident. I've raised, I've reared three, and it was always on purpose. It was never an accident. They have purposes. And uh, when you suspect they've had a purpose, you run your finger in that diaper and you confirm this was a purpose. It ain't nice. Now, let me tell you what, as a young man, I told my wife, I'll take care of number one, you take care of number two. You know how long that lasted? I didn't say this first service, Pastor. I'm kind of glad I didn't, but that lasted about seven days. Tommy came out of the hospital. She took care of number two and I took care of number one. But she had to go see uh, her, her doctor because we had some complications at birth. So I kept the new baby in the car with diapers. And wouldn't you know it, that child had a purpose. And I'm out in the car with nothing. No, I can't, Tommy's nowhere around. And I had to learn on the fly how to take care of that. But you know what I had to do? It stunk. It was distasteful. It was beneath me. But I died to self and I loved the child and I did what was necessary. And you know how you make a marriage flourish? When you learn that there are some things you may not like, but that you do them because you love that other person. And you will not raise godly children unless you die to your flesh and all of your chief desires become secondary to making and nurturing that child. It is the responsibility of parents to nurture and give this world the next generation of godly people. The reason there's a lot of godlessness now is because parents in large measure in America have abandoned that role. Because divorce and other, other factors have entered in and complicated what God intended to be so, so perfect and so ordered. We've now, we're reaping a whirlwind from rejecting God's purpose. The secondary purpose of marriage is to learn how to die to self. The third and final purpose of marriage, and with this I close the message, the ultimate purpose of, of any marriage, and some of you are in a marriage and some of you will someday, uh, is to bring glory and honor to God. Now I know that sounds religious, but let me illustrate. You know, um, 
my wife and I have worked out all of our life. I was an athlete and uh, I never got away from it. I've jogged and I've run and I've walked, whatever. I, some form of activity just about every day. Uh, we've, especially, she's better at it than I am. I'm telling you, she's got weights in the house and, and uh, she's a Zumba maniac. Anybody know what Zumba is? Pastor, I can't, I can't pastor anymore because my wife dances. It's an exercise called Zumba. I've watched it on video and I mean, it, I get tired watching them. But I mean, she's a, she's a professional Zumba maniac. I mean, she keeps herself in top physical condition. And I love her for that. Listen very carefully. The ultimate purpose of our life is to make sure that we glorify God. And there's no better place than a lifelong marriage. Some of you, and I'm delighted I'm preaching to college students primarily in this hour. Your life is in front of you. You need to look at marriage as a permanent covenant relationship. I'm speaking to some perhaps who've already been through a failed marriage, but the marriage that you are now in is God's purpose for your life and you need to seal the deal. No escape hatch, no way out. I'm committed until death. If you do that, God will conform you to the image of his son. You'll have to live a crucified life to get there, especially if you have a spouse that doesn't pursue Christ. But the day will come when your physical apparatus will wear out. No matter how much we exercise, gravity is taking over. I'm the oldest I've ever been in my whole life right now. And I'm telling you, I don't pick anything up until there's at least two things down there because getting back up is just too hard. There's so many couples in this church I could cite, but I cited one and I'll stay with one. If you ever come to the early morning service and you look right over there, you'll see Tommy and I on the third row. We sit over there because we want to be close to a couple that I have known my entire 49 years in this church. The gentleman broke his neck about two years ago and came to this church as soon as he got out of the hospital for over a year wearing a neck brace with, with a, an apparatus that was attached to his skull, making sure that his head didn't move. For one year, never missed a day in church. I met Doyle and Betty Alexander when I was a freshman and our sophomore and fell in love with Jesus when I sat right there in that pew every single Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, never missed. Went to prayer meeting with all the men on Tuesday morning. I didn't miss. And always Doyle Alexander and Betty Alexander, if it was for men, Doyle was there. If it's for both, they're both there. And they've done that now their entire life. And they don't know this, but I have traveled the world over. I've spoken to people of high rank and low rank, but every time I have, they're going to get some of the reward for that more than I will in many cases because they have always with humility just did what they could. And you know what? You, you live across the street from somebody like that. You may see Doyle, no doubt, when he went out to get the paper when all those wires were in his head. He probably stooped down and at times couldn't get up and guess who was there to assist? Betty. And some young buff across the street who still works out, who runs every day, probably looked out the window and said, you know, those two people love Jesus. So that's what it means to love Jesus with all your heart. Because it's not in how high you rise or how well you sing or how hard you preach, but how steady is that relationship to the people closest to you, your wife, your children. And if it ain't working at home, it ain't working anywhere. The proudest achievement of my life is three children who love Jesus with all their heart and are serving him faithfully in their respective churches. And that is really 
what brings honor and glory to God the most. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for the joy of preaching. Thank you for the privilege of sharing these truths. I pray that they resonate in people's hearts. But Lord, I know that no one can live the life I've described without Jesus. It can't be done without a right relationship with him. So I pray today for those in this room who know about Jesus but don't truly know Jesus. While our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, the Christ life is absolutely essential to living a life like Dole and Betty Alexander. It cannot be done in the energy of the flesh. There are two kinds of people in this room, and it's not member versus non-member. It's not male and female. When God looks in this room, he only sees saved, lost. He's, there's two roadways of life, Jesus said this when he was on earth. He said, there's a broad road that leads to damnation, but there's a narrow road that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Let me ask you this question. You're on one of those two roads. Are you on the broad road that leads to hell or the narrow road that leads to heaven? Let me be a little more personal and we'll get on with the invitation. How many in this room can say, preacher, I'm not perfect. I don't always do the right thing. But this one thing I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, I know that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. I know that while I live, Jesus is living in me. I know that I know for sure that I'm saved because I clearly remember when I turned from my sin and gave my heart to Jesus. You may not know the date, but you remember the encounter. How many in this room can say, preacher, I know that I'm saved. I remember when Jesus became a part of my life. Would you raise your hand right now if you can say that as a testimony? What a privilege and what a joy. Now you may put your hands down, listen carefully. There are a number of people who didn't raise their hand and some in this room who didn't because they couldn't and be honest. It's to you I want to speak. How many in this room would say, preacher, if I died right now, if I, if I dropped dead of a heart attack, if I were killed on a highway going back to the dorm, I don't have any assurance that I'd go to heaven. I can't say that I know that I know Jesus. I cannot say to you that I know I'm saved. Preacher, I, I, I want to know that, but I can't say that I know that. I didn't raise my hand a moment ago because I could not. But you'd go a step further and say, would you pray for me? I promise I won't point you out. I won't embarrass you in any manner. I won't catch you at the back door. I'll just simply pray a general prayer, but I'll have you in my heart. Preacher, I can't say that I know I'm saved. Would you raise your hand if that's where you are spiritually right now? I can't say I know if I died, I'd go to heaven. Pray for me. Just raise it up, wiggle a finger, ride back down. The first step toward having a life changed is acknowledging the need. If you want me to pray for you, would you raise your hand right now? Thank you so much for your honesty and your humility. And I promise I will. Anyone else? Are there others? I know that there are others. But, I, you know, you can't be helped if you don't ask for it. Anybody else say, Rick, pray for me. Pray for me. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Father, I come to you with these who've asked me to pray for them. I see faces, you see hearts. Lord, I see in some cases a real travail, a, a desire. But Lord, they have to make a choice. But I pray it'd be easier to say yes to your son than to say no. I pray before we leave here that these who need Jesus would give their heart to Jesus. If you've never been saved and you couldn't say for sure you knew if you died, you'd go to heaven. Would you right now, right where you're at, pray these words after me? 
pray them softly. You're not talking to me, you're talking to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Pray those words. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've done many things that I know were wrong and I'm sorry. I believe you died on the cross to save sinners like me. Pray that. I believe you died on the cross to save sinners like me. Today, Lord Jesus, I understand that when you died, you died especially for me. So I open the door of my heart. Pray that. I open the door of my heart by faith and I receive you as my savior. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Wash away my sin by your blood. Give me eternal life. In your name I pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you just prayed that prayer after me and you meant it, would you raise your hand right now? If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, raise the high. Don't be ashamed of that. God bless you. We're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to sing a couple of verses of invitation. If you're looking for a church home, I've been a part of this church for 49 years. I know it's not perfect, but I know it's a place where God is honored. And I invite you to come and join the church. I invite you, if you prayed that prayer, to make it known. I invite you, if you thought about praying and didn't, come and let us help you. We're going to stand and sing two verses. We're waiting just for you. Let's sing.